I'm going to give you a bird's eye view of what you can get on a tape, a videotape. It's called Catechetical Instruction, the why and how. How many of you have seen that tape? Not very many. Uh, it's available from the Christian Education Committee in Philadelphia. It's about a two and a half hour tape, and it's uh, the material that I'm not going to have time to do now, but just touch the high points thereof. What do we need to do with our precious children? You know, that, it's really been something for me this week. I, I'm an 18-grandchild grandfather. I am so blessed with these precious children. They go from 18 years old down to in utero. <laughs> the 18th is yet to make his or her appearance. It'll be in November, Lord willing. And uh, I'm just so rich in uh, covenant uh, heritage, backward and forward. And also at this camp, just to see these little dear ones walking around and being happy to be loved, to be part of the church, though they don't know that it's a church, they'll soon enough find out, and to be taken in the Lord's way. So precious. And uh, I've just so much enjoyed watching them, touching them, having them smile at me. <laughs> I've loved it. Thank you for letting me share in this covenant experience. And uh, we've got a job to do with them. And uh, it's under, what, what is the heading that we're under? Why, why teach our, our covenant children? Because God commands it. Uh, we looked at Deuteronomy 6, and then because of the consequences, Proverbs 22, 6, if you train a child according to his way or her way, when they're old, they won't depart from that way. And that's very, very sad. But the implication is pretty plain also, isn't it? Train them according to God's way, and I think the same thing will hold true. They won't depart from that either. Uh, because they are members of the church, we, uh, we looked at that last time. And then we, then we were looking at uh, what are we to teach our covenant children, and we said the Bible. And then we said God's covenant name. That's what Christian education is, teaching the name of God. And we didn't get very much in detail of that. That's a sermon. Maybe some of you heard that sermon. I preached it about 50 times when I was general secretary of Christian ed because it seemed like that was the sermon. So I preached it uh, throughout our denomination. Uh, and now uh, we come to see to teach the catechism. And this isn't an absolute requirement. I suppose you can teach the Bible to your children directly. But why, uh, why not use the help that we have? Why not use what G.I. Williamson calls the map of the Bible? That's what catechism is. When you, uh, when you go on a trip, it's more important that you actually drive the car on the right road to get to where you're supposed to go than that you sit at home and look at the map. <laughs> but... Uh, it's also important that you get on the right road and that you know whether to turn right or left at the end of your driveway <laughs> to get to your vacation spot. And that's why you have a map. And so therefore the map, though it's not the end in view, it is a very helpful tool and means and instrument to that end. And the end of catechetical instruction is not the memorizing of the catechism in and of itself, but the catechism is a map, a help, which guides us into the learning and the understanding of the real thing, which is the Bible. So uh, just a brief survey of what's in the uh, catechism video. Boy, this is about four pages or so, and I, I don't know whether we'll have time for the demonstration class or not. We'll just see what happens. What is catechetical instruction? Well, it comes from the Greek verb katecheo, which means to instruct. And we uh, learn from church history that 
We already had catechetical instruction by the 3rd century, and it was to describe the church's official teaching and instruction given to candidates for baptism. So here we're not so much thinking about covenant youth, we're thinking about people who have been saved from the world and want to be disciples of Christ, and the church is, is now ready to follow the instructions of the Lord Jesus Christ, which were, of course, uh, make disciples of the nations, the pantata ethne, all of the, the Gentiles, make disciples, that is, tell them that there's a Savior of sinners, and they'll say, wonderful, who is he? Tell us about him, we want to follow him, right? You've got a disciple now, you've got somebody that's on the way, and the first thing you do with them, of course, is you baptize them. Because uh, God's already moved in their heart to get them to say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. So something's already happened, and, and so since God has done that, then they are to be baptized, and then everything begins. Then you go to, to uh, plan C, which is to teach them whatever Christ has commanded. And what is his first commandment? That you believe in the name of the Son of God. So you see, when you start talking about the gospel to a person who's willing to listen because they hear, I'm in trouble, I, I need a Savior, and you start teaching the gospel to them, that's the first command from the Lord Jesus, and they hear, believe in the name of the Son of God, who is He? And you tell them who He is, and you tell them what He has done, you announce the great transactions of grace that God has brought to pass, in Cal on Calvary and from the empty tomb and from Christ's throne in heaven today. And these, these disciples, they're already disciples of Jesus. They're already baptized. And, and now they're beginning to learn the content of what's involved. It's kind of like what we do with our babies. They're, they're, uh, how do we know that they're disciples of Jesus? <laughs> because as Mama Ragu says about her spaghetti sauce, it's in there. They're in there. <laughs> They're in our arms. They're there. They're here. And we've got them. And God has got them. And they're baptized. The girls as well as the boys. Isn't that great? They bear the sign of discipleship of the Lord Jesus. And then we start. And uh, one of the early... You see, this isn't in my notes, but I can't help myself. That one of the early things we do with them is... They're at the table, and then we pray. And they're there, and they're one. <laughs> and they're mushing around with their peas, you know, while the prayer of thanksgiving is offered. And they're disciples of Jesus, and they're learning. And we don't ask them whether they want to pray. They pray. They pray with us. And they listen to the Bible being read. And then finally, we get to really their graduation from that baby beginning and we say who made you Susie and she learns to say God and she's well underway in her catechetical instruction well but it was going on in the early church and uh, the instruction that was given primarily to lead people to confirmation that would be a place where they could stand on the hind feet and they can say out loud yes I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. The Apostles' Creed was just a catechetical tool. And the emphasis in the early church was on oral, usually rote, learning of the faith. Questions and answers. And it's been going on uh, throughout church history. Nothing much was happening in the Middle Ages. The uh, church uh, sort of lost it then, and they got into sacramentalism. The main thing you had to do there was to pay attention when the bell rang, when it was time for, uh, for the uh, uh, Mass to take place. And, and the bread and the wine were being transformed into the body and blood of Christ. And you stopped your milling around and chatting with one another and you paid attention because something's going on up there that's important. We don't quite know what it is because it's in Latin. Uh, but um, uh, anyway, that's what happened for like a thousand years. And that was sad, but then we had a Protestant Reformation. And uh, the Protestant Reformation not only said uh, sola fide, sola gloria, uh, sola Christe, sola, uh, all the sola, sola scriptura, but it also said we, we, need to, we need to learn. 
and we need to grow in our understanding. We need to catechize our, our children. And so when the, when the uh, Reformation came to Great Britain, which is sort of like the background of much of our American uh, Presbyterianism, we're not all uh, British uh, in, in our ethnic background or our national background, but uh, the Scotch and the Irish came to, to this country, and they are the, the heritage of the Reformation in, in Great Britain. And when um, Henry VIII uh, had his very uh, unauspicious break from Rome because he wanted a different wife than the one he had, uh, nevertheless, uh, through his daughter Elizabeth in the latter part of the 16th century, you had Protestantism becoming pretty uh, entrenched in England, but it was a very high church thing, and it, it, uh, it really needed some work. And uh, when Charles I then, in the early uh, part of the 17th century, is on, is on the throne after James and the, the King James Version of the Bible, now we have Charles, and there comes a civil war uh, between the... Uh, the followers of the king and, and the people that wanted a parliamentary uh, government. And it was also connected some to religion. There was the high church Episcopalians that were pretty much for the king and the independents and the Presbyterians uh, were for the parliament. Well, the parliament got, uh, got pretty powerful and they decided that uh, if they're going to win this civil war, then we're going to have a different England. We're going to have an England that's not going to be high church where prelates and prayer books rule, but we're going to have a church in which Christ rules and, and where the people uh, understand what's going on and uh, it's going to be closer to the Bible. And so the Parliament said, let's get the very best theologians of the land, Scotland as well as Northern Ireland as well as England, and even let's get some help from the continent, and we'll gather all these ministers and uh, theologians together and we're going to give them a big job would you please write down clearly for us what the Bible says, the way things are, what we believe and how we're to, to live. Give us a good, solid summary. Now, there were other such summaries from the continent, the Heidelberg Catechism, for one, from the latter part of the, of the eighth uh, decade of the 16th century. But um, that was for the continent. That was slightly different. Let's have a distinctly Presbyterian one for, for the British Isles and thus the Westminster Assembly was formed. And uh, apparently uh, some 121 ministers were named by Parliament, uh, together with 10 members of the House of Lords and 20 from the House of Commons. But uh, of all of those that were invited, only 69 gathered for the opening assembly. So it was a, a body of uh, uh, something a little smaller than we have in this room here now, or maybe roughly this size that gathered in Westminster Abbey in London in 1643, and they began their work. And three years later, in 1646, the Confession of Faith was presented by the uh, uh, courier from the Westminster Assembly to the Parliament, for the Parliament was the one that had asked for it. And uh, Jack Rogers quotes the courier, uh, Jack Rogers in his book, Scripture in the Westminster Confession, quotes the courier as saying, as he delivered the document, the Westminster Confession, to the Parliament, they, the assembly, do desire that if either the thing do seem long or that they have been long in perfecting of it, three years, that you will consider that the matter of business is matter of great weight and importance. I love that. Great weight and importance. And indeed it is that. And it, uh, it persists today as the... Uh, primary uh, uh, documentary uh, secondary standard of the denomination. Uh, we've made a couple little changes to it. We don't say that the Pope is the Antichrist, and we uh, don't have quite as high regard for the power of the civil magistrate. And a couple of little bits and pieces we change, but otherwise it's the same document that the Parliament got in 1646. Uh, then the, the larger catechism was presented in, in October of 1647, and finally the shorter catechism uh, one month later in that same year. The interesting thing is this tells you something about the education of people in that century compared with our own. The um, larger catechism uh, was uh, to be uh, for um, people of common uh, and, uh, no, of, lar uh, of understanding 
And the shorter catechism was for those who are the common and unlearned people. Uh, I think that we've, we've notched it down one, it's for sure. We, uh, I don't think we have as good an educational system, apparently, as they did then. Uh, I love the shorter catechism. Uh, it starts out and it tells us all the main ABCs and the early questions. And then you get to the teens, and that's where all the trouble is described. No pun intended. But uh, when you get to 20, uh, wonderful things happen. Uh, did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? And what does the uh, catechism instructor tell us? God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. That is, that is an English sentence, folks. <laughs> you, want, you want to have a course in English literature? You want to have a paradigmal English sentence? There it is. It's a beauty. Well, in 1840, a guy named Joseph Engels in, in England uh, thought, well, we're slipping in our education and the shorter catechism is no longer usable for the common and, and unlearned people. We need to have something simpler still. And so he wrote a catechism for young children. And that uh, was written just by one man, so you can expect that there are some, you know, faults in it. There are faults in the shorter catechism, too, I'm sure. It's, it's not a God-divinely inspired document. But it's, it's not bad. And the catechism for young children, however, has got some quirks. The original one said, uh, what is a, uh, a, um, a covenant? And the answer was an agreement between two or more persons. Gong. And uh, GCP has uh, revised this now twice. Now I think a, a covenant, is, the question is, what is a sacred covenant? And I think the answer is uh, an arrangement with, which God uh, sets up and guarantees by his word. Better than an, an, arrangement, an agreement between two or more persons. But I don't think we're, we're there yet on that one. Uh, I like Palmer Robertson's, a bond in blood sovereignly administered. But maybe that's a little bit much for a little three-year-old. So uh, I have an assignment for you. Would you give me a definition of a sacred covenant uh, with, of ten words or less that a three-year-old can get her or his mouth around? And uh, I don't think you're going to do it in an hour or two. It hasn't been done yet, I don't think. Recently, GCP has produced a catechism course entitled Kids' Quest in two sections, one for preschoolers and one for primaries. Personally, I'm not real excited. They've had me do some editing work in that. In fact, I've got work at home to do on that still. It's going to be going on for a while. And uh, I, you, you win some and you lose some when you're an editor for GCP. I really desperately wanted them to do something about this soul-spirit problem. They're always talking about having a soul, having a soul. And I think that's the wrong way to get at it. I don't think we have a soul. Where did I put my soul? Going to be around here. What's that? It's on the bottom. Of your shirt. It's on the bo <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> now, I got a dog, Buddy Bear, and I think he's soulish. I think Genesis one says he is. He's a nephesh hayah. He's a living soul, a living creature. He, he goes around and looks for his food, and he's cute, and he has emotions and everything. That's his soulishness. But I don't think that's what the Bible is talking about when it says in Genesis uh, seven two seven b. And, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Yeah, here's another animal. Here's another nephishayah, but uh, a special one. <laughs> God created man after his own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And I think that, uh, that, that we are spirit. We are, we are a body-spirit critter. Animals aren't body-spirit critters. They're just body critters. And that body is also soulish. And we are soulish. But we are spirit. And I begged GCP to ask the children, are you spirit as well as body? And the answer is yes. <laughs> but uh, they didn't go for it. So we've still got this mushy stuff about uh, you have a soul. And I'm still looking for mine. Although you told me it's down here. So, but I won a couple of points. And I'm still working at it. 
And not only do we, uh, do we fiddle with the catechism itself, but then there's the whole teaching of it and all the teaching material. And I'm involved with others in the editing of that. But I'm not at all convinced that we ought to be doing it, at least for the, for the kids in school. I think I'm, I'm okay with Kids Quest for the preschoolers. But I have a sneaking suspicion, and I've only come to this opinion in, in my later years, I have come to the position now that I think maybe we ought to dive right into the shorter catechism as soon as the children can, can read. I don't know, what you, maybe in the question and answer time you can express yourself on that. But uh, I, I'm coming more and more to the position that that shorter catechism is so good that we ought to get at it. A-S-A-P. But uh, don't tell GCP I said that or probably fire me as the editor of the Kids Quest. Now, um, personal note is I attended the seminary of the kitchen table. You didn't know about the seminary? Uh, the proliferation of seminaries these days. I had one. It was the seminary of the kitchen table. had a faculty of one. Her name was Thalma Tyson. And uh, she, she taught me theology uh, even though she didn't use the catechism. I don't know why. And uh, there, was no ca- there were no catechism classes in the church that I grew up in. I grew up in Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania. No catechism class. My mom didn't use the catechism. She just basically used the Bible. But she found that Tommy was interested in theology, and she was too. And my dad was an elder, but he was no theologian. And so she basically did her theology with me instead of with her husband, my dad. And so we did the catechism, we did the seminary of the kitchen table. And by the time I got to Westminster Seminary at age um, 21, uh, basically uh, the things that I did with John Murray were were a touch-up course of what I'd already learned from my mother. And I'm very thankful for that. And the only thing that I would have asked uh, by way of improvement would have been that she had used the catechism, too. I had to memorize the catechism later in life. And I didn't get it when I was a kid, which would have been great. But then I went to New Zealand in 1964. I was called there into the Reformed Churches of New Zealand where they had the Heidelberg Catechism and the uh, session, uh, the consistory of the church there in Bucklands Beach near Auckland uh, in New Zealand said, now, Mr. Tyson, you're going to teach the Heidelberg Catechism. And I knew that was coming. But boy, did they ever attend faithfully. We had people come from wherever, they brought them faithfully to catechism class, and later on when I was pastor in Hamilton, which was down in the uh, Waikato and the, the Darien country, people came from as far away as 40, 45 miles. Those farmers would stop, those dairymen would bring their kids to catechism class. I felt very honored to do that. And so I really became familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism in those seven and a half years. So that by the time I got back to the United States in 1971 and was called to Trinity Church Hatboro, I said, maybe, when they said, Do you want to, would you like to come and be the pastor? I said, maybe. It all depends on you. Will, you. will you do catechism? And they said, well, I suppose so. I think they realized that maybe it's something they should have been doing all along. And so we had catechism class at Trinity Hatboro for nine years. And then I got called to Silver Spring, Maryland, Knox Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And they, first of all, they said, do you, do you want to come here and be the pastor? And I said, maybe. And it, will you? Now I felt I had a little clout because I had a few years behind me at, at Trinity Hatboro. And I was ready to say no if they would not agree. But they agreed too. So we had catechism in, uh, Hamil- in, uh, in uh, uh, Silver Spring, Maryland. So for 18 years I taught the uh, shorter catechism using... Uh, in Hatboro I used the Bible doctrine books written by Dorothy Partington Anderson. And then in, in Silver Spring, I used G.I. Williamson's uh, Shorter Catechism booklets, which are now available in one volume. It's been reprinted by Presbyterian and Reformed in one volume with the same old drawings of Shorty. <laughs> they tried to pull a fast one on G.I. and I. Presbyterian and Reformed correctly say that this, these drawings were done by an amateur. And uh, we know they were. But they said, we're, we're going to hire a real artist to do them. And G.I. asked me if, if that was all right with me, and I said, yeah, that's all right with me, but 
I, I would sort of hate to lose the sort of like their, their what would you call it, a homey character. They're kind of a little bit corny. And I, I, we're going to get this pro who's going to come in there, you know, and fix it all up. And so G.I. and I, as we talked it over, we decided no. And so we said to P&R, no, <laughs> you, can't, you can't change it. They said, okay, this has been one of their best sellers. I get like three and a half percent of the uh, royalty. It's some little piddly amount, but it basically helped to put my kids through college because that thing has sold scores of thousands of copies. came out in 1971. It's, it's now uh, 30, 32 years going, and uh, I, I have no idea how many copies have been sold, but lots, basically because it, it has a corner on the market. It just isn't too much uh, competition. And there's old Shorty, you know, in all of his non-glory. Uh, and he's sailing along. He's now in one volume. Um, a definition of catechetical instruction. It's a systematic presentation of Bible truth in a form that can be memorized, understood, and embraced so that the covenant member knows what he believes and why and acts on it. By the way, amendments to this definition are welcome. This definition is like Topsy. It's been growing since 1989. It's now 14 years old. And every once in a while I tweak it with an adjective or a word. And uh, if you have some suggestions of how this can be further tweaked, let me know because I want to get the very best definition known to man of catechetical instruction. Who should be catechized? Well, what did Jesus say? Teaching them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you. Apparently, who are the them? Pontus ethne, <laughs> the Gentiles. So the whole covenant, entire covenant community needs to be catechized. Now, we catechize in different ways. We catechize when we preach. We catechize when we have prayer meeting. We catechize when we have Sunday school. We catechize when we have catechism classes. And that's what we do as a church. We worship God and we teach His Word. Because... God said to the first church officer, Abraham, or about him, God said, I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, Genesis 18:19. And I take that to mean that God wants the entire church, because, of course, what was the church then? Well, it was Abraham and his kids and any servants that he had in the household. That was the church. So if God wanted the whole church of Abraham taught, he wants the whole Orthodox Presbyterian church taught. I mean, that just follows. Even Jesus went to catechism class. You know that, don't you? Age 12, he was taken to catechism class. The only thing is his parents forgot to pick him up after class. And that was fun and games. And then in the Great Commission, we've seen Jesus says teaching them. Uh, Hebrews 5 teaches us that knowledge is unto life. Hebrews 5 tells us that uh, we don't learn stuff so that our heads get crammed full of knowledge, but that all teaching must lead to righteousness. Now, I know it's a very bad translation in the NIV. and In fact, I haven't found a single translation yet that translates it, I think, correctly. He says, what we have, what we have to do is we have to give people Dikaiosune Lagoi, righteousness teaching or righteousness doctrine. And uh, the uh, NIV says the teaching about righteousness. Duh. What a bad translation that is. He's not talking about the teaching about righteousness. He's not talking about, uh, he's not saying that what you need to teach the church is the doctrine of justification by faith or imputation of Christ's righteousness. That's not. What he's saying is, you have to teach the church the entirety, the corpus of the gospel. You need to teach them everything that is true, that God has revealed to us, all doctrine, which is to be characterized by righteousness. That is, it's to produce not smart people, but godly people. That's the point of Hebrews Five, verses 11 through 14. So, 
Whenever I get hired to translate Hebrews for the next Bible version, when I get to that, that verse, I'm going to translate it, the teaching that leads to righteousness. And I'm going to put the words, that leads to, in italics. Because I get a chance to do that too, if the King James translators do. Sometimes they put words in an italics to bring over the meaning of the Greek to us. And that's what you need to do. You can't translate it, the righteousness teaching. Nobody would know what that meant. But you certainly can't say the teaching about righteousness, for that is not what it's saying. It's saying the doctrine that leads to righteousness. And why am I making a point about this? Because that's what catechism class is for. Not so that our kids get theologically smart, but that they be sanctified and that they grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Son of God. I actually have had parents who have balked at sending their kids to catechism class because they say, I don't want them to be smart, I want them to be good. And I say, right, that's why I want you to send them to the catechism class. That's what I'm after too. And I take them to Hebrews 5. And I tell them, that's what I'm after in catechism class. Now that doesn't mean that I'm busy nailing the kids in catechism class and tell them how bad they are. It's that I teach them the full-orbed gospel and I call upon them to to pray that God would so work in their hearts that they would be changed and they would become glorifiers of God. Partly because they've been to catechism class. So, catechism class is not learn stuff, join church, coast along, but rather a God-created and God-loved church that learns of Him and then goes on obeying Him. And that includes the big people as well as the little kids too. So if I were to present you with a biblical flow chart of Christian education, it would go like this. Children of the covenant. They're there. Mama Ragu. They're there. (laughs) They're in there. (laughs) Children of the covenant. Baptized. Because they're there. Baptized. Catechized responsible to ratify that confession, that gospel, personally by believing in Jesus and by going on obeying Him for the rest of their lives. That's, that's the biblical flow chart of Christian education. Who should do the catechizing? The parents in the first place. We know the verses for that. But I think the church gives the parents help. Ministers and elders are responsible to be shepherds of the church of God. And it doesn't say anything about all those over 18. So I believe that ministers and elders are responsible for the shepherding of the whole church. Now that doesn't mean that the ministers and the elders take the kids out of the home and catechize them. Of course not. But the ministers and the elders are responsible to see to it that the children are being catechized by the moms and the dads. So where should the catechizing take place? In the home. And there I I give some suggestions about how you can do this in family worship. But I've already been beaten to this by our dear brother Al. And he's got this Westminster family project. And this is the best thing I've seen yet. So this is now going to go smack dab right into my catechetics course at MTI. Well, it's too late. You you gave it to me. And... (laughs) And I'm, go- I'm going to tell him if you find flaws with it, go talk to Al. But I think the way in which you're going about it is wonderful. It's a one card, and I love the way you do it. Have you people seen this? Duh! It was right here yesterday. See Big Al. It's the Westminster Family Project. And it has you teaching the shorter catechism. Is this the larger? This is shorter. But, uh, I think the one you have, I, I explained what the shorter catechism is saying by referencing the larger. Right. It gives the catechism, it gives a little essay on it, it gives questions to be dealt with, it gives 
Scripture passage to read, discussion questions, all there in one... That's for a week, isn't it, Al? One card can be used for a week. This is great stuff. You've got it right in the bosom of your presbytery, in your regional church. Some of the best material I've seen yet. It's right here. Why are you making such a secret of it? It's not ready for prime time. Okay, I don't want to push it beyond the conveyor. You can still buy the cards, and this is coming afterwards. The cards are the actual catechism. All right. Um, do it in your home. Do it at, uh, at the meal table. Do, do you people eat together as families, or have you capitulated to modern Americanism? I hope not. Please eat together at least one meal every day, and then dads, catechize your kids at that table. And they cannot go out and they cannot do their homework until after we're done doing the meal. And the meal is A, eating, and B, worshiping. Do it. Now, there are lots of things you can use. You can use um, Bible story books. I think the best, one of the best is the Vries. But you can, also, uh, you can also use the graph, promise, and deliverance. That's a good one, too. Very good one. I used that when my kids... I had five teenagers simultaneously for a number of years. And I found that promise and deliverance was really very much enjoyed by my teenagers. When you have family worship, not only talk about the Bible, but pray and have catechism memorization for all family members and sing. Will you please sing? at family worship. Then in the church, pastors, will you please bring the catechism into your sermons as much as possible? You might even use liturgical elements. We have Q&A available from GCP. That's a bulletin insert in which you can have a little catechism moment in the uh, evening worship service, if not the morning worship service. But for sure, will you please have catechism classes you can use Bible Doctrine. You can use West, uh, Williamson's book. You can use Kids Quest, whatever. But have catechism classes. Um, the way I, I did it during those, nine, those 18 years in those two churches was we, up, up till the kids were seven years old, they, they worked on the first catechism, and that was done by the parents in the home. And all I did was check on them once every six weeks. And that was a fun time. Every six, this was a schedule that was published on the church bulletin board so every parent would know when it's coming up. And on a certain Sunday, about every six weeks, the little ones were invited into my study. And I prepared for it. It was 45 minutes before the evening worship service and I had all the little chairs in there in my study. I brought them out of the nursery, brought them into my study and I put them there. I usually had maybe four or five children at any given time. These were the children that were working on the, the children's catechism or on leading little ones to God. Uh, I also had them, also had them read those in, in the home. And I did not teach them anything in that course, that class. That was purely for them to tell me what they had learned from mom and dad. And they always came so eager, <laughs> precious, and, and they were always ready. I mean, you didn't go to that if you weren't ready. <laughs> and I would sit down and I would say to them one by one, tell me what you learned. And they would recite their verse or recite the catechism or answer the questions at the end of the chapters that had been assigned from leading little ones to God. That's all we did for about 20 minutes. I just, 20, 25 minutes, I just heard them. And you know, that was one of the very best catechism classes we could have. What it said to those children was, they are in this church. Because I was the big guy, you know, that was always standing up front at church time. But now I belong to them. And I, they had my undivided attention. And all we did was let me, who was a representative of the church, hear them, who are the members of the church, show what God was doing in their lives and what they were learning. That was probably the, the most joyous and most important catechism class. Then when they were uh, eight and nine year old, 
uh, well, no, that, the, the um, up to seven, that, they, that were, they were done in the home. I, I jumped ahead. It was the eight and the nine-year-olds that met with me before church. Then the ten and eleven-year-olds uh, met with the, one of the elders, and they went over the catechism, basically just to memorize it and make sure they understood the meaning of the words. And uh, they also played catechism baseball and did some other fun things. Then when they were 12 and 13 and 14 in junior high, then I had the formal catechism class with them at, uh, on Saturday afternoons at 5 o'clock. We, we zeroed in on that time at uh, Silver Spring, and it really worked. It was an incredible time. Think about it. Nobody was doing anything at 5 o'clock on Saturday, and, uh, except maybe getting ready for dinner or something. It was after the football games and before the evening activities, and it worked! And the kids got there to catechism class. So from 5 o'clock to 6 o'clock on Saturdays, I went over the Shorter Catechism book with G.I. Williamson with them. And the way I set up the classes and and taught them uh, were uh, to divide the hour into three segments. The first segment was a 10-minute group drill on the catechism answers. And this is where I let the kids cheat. They didn't ever have to actually study the catechism at all. All they had to do was faithfully come to catechism class and pay attention during the 10 minutes. (laughs) And they got free memorization of the catechism. Because all we did for 10 minutes was just drill. And so, like learning times tables, you know, saying it over and over again, they said it over. They were supposed to try to learn them at home, but I knew that many of them didn't. But when they came, in those 10 minutes, it was amazing how much you can learn if you just keep doing it week after week after week. So for 10 minutes, all we did was drill. Then the next 20 minutes, we had the student, I had the students answer the review questions in Williamson's book. Now, it's very important that you understand what I was doing during those 20 minutes because this is a key part of the catechism class. That was not the time where I said anything. Nor was it a time when we argued about or debated or tweaked the answers to the questions. That was the time where the kids showed me that they had read the five pages of the chapter. Because if you've looked at G.I.'s book, you'll notice that those questions at the end of the chapter, they're divided into review questions and discussion questions. I think they are. seems to me. Or am I confusing that with another book? Maybe they're maybe maybe not. Maybe it's just the questions. That may be it. But the questions, because I haven't taught this now for 14 years, the questions can be answered by finding the answers in the chapter. There, there are questions that elicit whether, did you read the chapter? Did you, under, did you comprehend it? So here's another place where I made it real easy for my catechumena. I allowed them to make marks on, in their book. They could, question one would ask something. They, they could go and look in the chapter and find out where that, the answer to that question was, and they could write a one in the margin. <laughs> so then I would go around the class and I would say, Susie, uh, I'd ask the question, and she was allowed to answer it in her own words if she wanted to, but she didn't have to. She could turn to the page where she put the one in the margin and read what Mr. Williamson said, because that's the answer to the question, and that was the correct answer. <laughs> And then we would go on to the next one. And so for 20 minutes, we would find out whether the kids had read the chapter and comprehended the material in the chapter. That's a very critical thing. What's the sense in talking about what things mean if we don't even have the data? So that's the first thing we had to do, get that straight. So we had our drill for 10 minutes, review questions to find out that they read the chapter for 20 minutes, but now I've still got a whole half hour left. And that was Tyson time. That's where... Now, it's not on traditionism. It's a chapter on the creation of human spirit. How did God create... He calls it the soul again, so the first thing I do, I quarrel with him on that. (laughs) And I'd say, he should have used the word spirit. But uh, once we finish that, then G.I. says in that chapter that he's not a creationist. He doesn't believe that God creates the human spirit each time the uh, person is conceived. He believes that the spirit... I wish G.I. were here because then he would want to say, yeah, I'll tell you, Tom, why I believe that. <laughs> he believes that the Bible teaches that the spirit of a... zygote, uh, What is it? You know, a zygote. A zygote. 
the spirit of that first human thing that will be a human being, that is a human being, that first human being, there's already a spirit, comes from mom and dad's spirit. That's traditionism. And he leans heavily on Romans 5 and other passages. I don't, I don't think he's right yet. But I'm not sure. It's not in the confession. But G.I. Uh, presents that position in his book, The Shorter Catechism. So, during that half hour when I'm dealing with that lesson, that's what I talk about in that last half hour. I talk about the two different views about where a spirit comes from and how I don't think Mr. Williamson is right, even though they've told me what he said is right. So I present the creationist position, and maybe we've got some traditionists here, and we're not going to debate that today. But that just gives you an idea of what we do in that catechism class. And, you know, you might say, why would the kids care about that? They find that sort of interesting, just the concept of, does the Bible really give us any light on the question of where does our spirit come from? How did God create it, or how did it come to be? And it makes them think, and we look at some Bible verses, and rather than the kids saying, duh, this is, what in the world, who cares about this? I found just the opposite. They really get into it. They're trying to decide, well, is Mr. Tyson right or is Mr. Williamson right? And that's, I love that. I love that because they're starting to think. And when we come to the end of the class, I basically say, well, you know, maybe I'm wrong, maybe Mr. Williamson's right, but this is good that you've been thinking about this. And at least we know that God made our spirit somehow or other. And aren't we grateful? And then we pray about that and we thank God that however he made our spirits, that he made them. And so we don't have any problems. I never had any parents complaining to me on that one. Another one, another fun one, is when we talk about how God made our body. That's when we get into the whole question of um, whether, uh, whether God made our bodies from a pre-existent animal or whether he made our bodies from dust. And the answer is, uh, not from a pre-existent animal. But why? And G.I. Williamson in his book says, well, mainly because the, the Bible says in Genesis 2.7a that the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. And then Tyson time, <laughs> I say, yeah, Mr. Williamson is half right. But he should have looked at Genesis 2.7b, which he doesn't really deal with in that particular chapter, which says that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a nephish hayah. So he couldn't have been a nephish hayah before God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That, that many, you know, that's what animals were. Because he became a nephish hayah when he began to be. So this is a new creation. And that's why we know that God, that evolution is wrong, macroevolution is wrong, because of Genesis 2.7b not so much 27A. So I spent a whole half hour going over that with the kids and showing them that in Genesis chapter 1, all the animals are called Nephishayah, and in Genesis chapter 27B, uh, Adam became one of those Nephishayah when he was. And so he couldn't have been made out of one because... And the kids say, Oh, I get it. You can't make a Nephishayah out of a Nephishayah. And they see it. And then I say, now stand on your hind feet at public school when they're teaching you macroevolution and say, uh, Mrs. Smith, that's not what is so. And Mrs. Smith says, oh, oh yeah, I know you, Fred. You know, you're one of those evangelical Christians and you don't believe anything or you, that we teach here and you got your own crazy view. No, a crazy view. It's, it's what the Bible... Bible? Yeah, well, all right, Mrs. Smith, I don't ask you to believe it, but let me tell you what the Bible says. And what can Freddie do? Freddie doesn't have to just say, Mrs. Smith, I don't think we believe that in our church. You can say, Mrs. Smith, let me turn you to Genesis 2-7b. And whether you believe it or not, Christians cannot accept what you're saying here, and I cannot accept it, because God tells us that he made a brand new nephesh hayah called man. And he didn't make it out of another nephesh hayah called Australopithecus erectus, or whatever you're talking about. And then Mrs. Smith can say, how do I get this kid out of my class? He may not like you very much, Freddie, 
but at least you would have had a chance to stand on your hind feet and tell it like it is. And I know kids have done that. Um, Conclusion. If you're doing it, keep on doing it. If you're not, start something in your home, in your church, in your Christian school. Because I guess most of you homeschool, right? That's what most, most are, not, not all. You have a Christian school in Chula Vista? Right. There is, however, a major problem. Church is giving no catechetical instruction. Usually the following reasons are offered. The church says, the parent's job. And you say, oh, okay, where are your parents? They're over there. So I go over to them and say, are you the parents? They say, yeah. I say, why aren't you doing it? <laughs> it's the church's job. I just talked to them. And so the poor guy is battered back and forth. Nobody does it. So somebody has to take the bull by the horns and get going. What happens when covenant children are catechized? Seven things. And with this I close. They learn systematically what they are to believe. Two, they are encouraged lovingly to believe it. Three, they grow in confidence in giving answer to inquiries about their faith, Mrs. Smith. Four, they enjoy a most relevant experience. Enjoy. Let me stop right there and tell you about Marie. Marie was ready to come to the junior high catechism class in Silver Spring, but she didn't want to come because she didn't think she would enjoy it. And she got her parents convinced that maybe she didn't, shouldn't go. And so Marie's mom came to me the Sunday night prior to, we were going to start the catechism class next Saturday, and she said, Pastor Tyson, is it okay if Marie doesn't come to catechism class? And I said, oh, oh, I hope she will. But, but she doesn't really want to come. And couldn't you give us the book and we will teach her at home? And I knew I was in trouble then. You go, what was I going to do? What was I going to say about that? <laughs> I mean, that's exactly what I was hoping would do all along. So I didn't want to put any, throw any water on that at all. But I, I topped out and I fudged. And I said, well, Marie's mom, I'm not going to tell you the last name because you might know. Marie's mom, let's try it this way. Give me a chance. Tell Marie to come because she's an obedient girl. If you tell her to come, she'll come. Tell her to come and let me have a go at it. Just let me see if maybe she'll like it after all. And Marie's mom said, okay, after she talked to Dad, and, and then, okay, and there was Marie next Saturday, and what a face. <laughs> but she came back, and the second time, it wasn't quite so sour. And the third time, it was almost tolerable. <laughs> and pretty soon, Marie liked catechism class. Now, that is not because I did such a great job, it's because God was merciful. And he... He let Marie receive that gift. I mean, I am the pastor of the whole church, and I'm Marie's pastor, and Marie, I have something for you. I have something for you. Don't turn your nose up at it. Years later, when I went back to Silver Spring, when I was general secretary of Christian Ed, I was back preaching there, and there was Marie. And at the door, she gave me a big hug and said, Remember catechism class? <laughs> yeah. So, don't give up too easily. They enjoy a most relevant experience. They, five, they are taken seriously as church members, albeit covenant members, baptized members. They are church members, full church members. I didn't say fully communicant church members, but a, a non-communicant church member is not a kind of quasi-member. A non-communicate church member is a church member that doesn't yet come to the Lord's table because of 1 Corinthians 11, unless you believe in pedo communion, which I don't. Six, they 
or five, yeah, no, we have five, six, they know that they are taken seriously as members. You see, you can say to them, theoretically, you're a church member. But it's when they're sitting in the pastor's study before the evening service, and he is asking you to tell him what you've been learning. And he doesn't do anything but listen. What that says to the kid is, I matter to him. I matter here in this place. And that's good for them to feel that way. And then seven, the, the whole church grows in unity of faith and hope and love. And then there's a, did I give you the page on questions for discussion? Did I? What do you do when you're... I got two minutes for questions for discussion. Then, then we'll break and then it'll be time for your questions. What do you do when your child complains, but I don't want to go to catechism class. It's boring. Why can't I just do the work here at home? What? <laughs> the Marie treatment. Yeah. What do you do when a difficult disciplinary situation seems to be getting out of hand with your 18-year-old daughter and both of you are on the verge of tears? Yeah, how did you know that? That's what I did. You said pray. Who should pray with the young children at bedtime and how often? Mom or dad? Does it have to be both at the, at the bedside? What, one or the other? At least, yeah. yeah. Dad as well as mom? I think so. Right. What is your practice of uh, sun, uh, uh, TV monitoring? Hopefully you monitor the TV for sure, so I know what that is. But how about Sunday TV viewing? Is that a no-no for most of you? Videos. Videos, okay. VeggieTales. But not, but not uh, network, not... You don't make other people work on Sunday, do you? Okay. How do you how do you handle situations in which your children are having difficulty in getting along with neighborhood children from non-Christian homes? Any experience in that? A bunch of shy people this morning here. He'll, he'll have a crack at it. Uh, the same way as Christian children. I mean, they, the issue needs to be identified, confronted, and uh, apologies, confession, forgiveness granted. Maybe even have a chat with the parents? of. Yeah. Good. When do you explain why, and when do you settle for, because I'm the mommy, that's why? Is there a chronological place that answers that question, or how would you know when to do the one and when to do the other? Here's one. Brian. I think it's good to start with, I'm the mommy or I'm the daddy and that's why, but I'd like to follow it up with, they, so they know it's not just that I'm, I am in authority arbitrarily, but there's a reason given by God and I'll take as much time as it takes, I'll give him 60 decimal places if he needs it. <laughs> but uh, So there's an endurance thing there, but I think you have to teach them that the first it's because you're the person in authority and that's why, and uh, that helps you when one of these times we're going to be at a street and I'm going to stop somebody because I'm in authority there, and that's why. And I can tell them later so you don't get run over. Right. Jay Adams has his famous uh, swing issues and flame issues in the book. Did you read it, Christian Living in the Home? He said, you know, with, with the swing issue, you, you, uh, that's where you, you, tell, you told the kid not to get too close to the swing, and they're getting too close to the swing, and you just let them go because, boom, they get hit and it hurts but they don't die. You know, but there's the flame issue. You have a gas stove and they want to reach up and put their hand on top. Then, then you don't wait for them to do it because they may lose the use of their hand or something. So you, you, there, there's times to do the one and times to do the other. Did, uh, yeah. I was just going to add to what he said. Um, sometimes we have only, our, our oldest daughter is only three and a half, so we're still in a pretty much mommy says pretty so much thing. But, but, um, but sometimes... After she obeys, I give her the, you know, give her the, the privilege point. of understanding that I had a reason and this is why. I mean, she can, she can start thinking about consequences, but it's always obey first. Do you keep that pretty short, that explanation time? <laughs> Unlike our brother here who wants to... 
<laughs> so you, you didn't want to go real long, did you? I'd give it to him piecemeal. I mean, I'll just say because the next thing, and my son has learned that there's a next thing after that, so it depends on how much he wants to hear. Depends how many times you do the bad thing. You get the long or the short version. <laughs> okay, my, my time's up. I have to stop. Thank you.